It's looking uh, mighty, mighty low there. I'm gonna bring it up. So with these baffles, you gotta make sure to be on the inside of them. Otherwise, it's totally gonna yep. cut you off. Yep, yep, yep. Just so you know. So at the beginning, go, previous episode, this happened, or people said we were wrong, or mm -hmm. we left out something important. Another thing I'm thinking, or that I noticed, like in Steve Holmes' podcast, he he's doing his podcast under Nerdist, and every single episode is bookended with your entering Nerdist podcast or leaving Nerdist podcast, and then his podcast is in it. So that'd be some, if we had some bigger frame... Like, this is the world of science. <laughs> and then start the podcast inside of it. And then at the end, it's like, you're leaving the world of science. <laughs> I have a, a... Are we recording? Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So there's a, there's a guy in the honors program that I've had some classes with who has this incredible, deep, deep voice. And he listens to podcasts, but he's like just starting to get into it. And like, we were in the elevator. And I was like, hey, what, what do you got there? He's like, uh, it was This American Life. He says, this is the good stuff. Nice. And I was like, well, if you want the real good stuff, you got to listen to the radio lab. And you hadn't heard of it. Um, so I've, I've been wanting to talk to him and say, hey, will you do like a 10 second soundbite for us? It'd be cool to bookend it that way. I like it. I like it. But for now, we've got the beep boop boop beep boop noise. <laughs> so affectionately called. So affectionately called. Within our soundproof box, which is much cleaner this time. I'm, I'm happy with uh, how the soundproof box is yeah, looking. Yeah, you did a really good job. <laughs> so gonna, much glue and just cutting. Just going to stroke myself a little bit <laughs> over the soundproof box. This is nice. we got to come up with a name for it. It's the box of silence. Did you not see the box label? Of, did you write box of silence? Yeah. Okay, nope. The box of silence. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> so follow up. Do you have any um, any follow up from the first episode? No. That you can think of. Talked about Mars. Mars is cool. It's <laughs> the more I learn about it, the less awesome going there seems. Hmm. Because it's just so awesome inhospitable. Yeah. It's just yeah. everyone has this idealized idea. It's like how people think about the sea. You know how people watch I love Master and Commander. But you know I do people, love Master and Commander. People love like <laughs> ships and sailing in the sea. Remember because I went to Mass Maritime and one time one of our... Andrew's coming home. Do you want to pause it? No. Okay. okay let, cool. let it happen. Run so there, we had a guy who was our uh, our like commander or whatever. He uh -huh. was essentially the RA except that they have um, ultimate powers. Hello. Hello. How's it going? Do you like our box? You guys haven't started recording yet. Yeah, we are. Oh, sorry. Welcome. Okay. No, this is part oh, of it. Everybody. Gotta keep it organic. <laughs> <laughs> so we had a guy who was, uh, we, like, we were all freshmen. He was a senior, I think. Uh, yeah, he was. He was a senior. And uh, he gave us, one time he broke down crying. And he's like, I love the sea. And he was just talking about <laughs> how awesome it was because he said he was getting married soon and he was really emotional about uh -huh. being engaged and everything. And he's just like, uh -huh. he's like, I love my wife. But I also love the sea. And so we all knew we were getting trouble, and he would give us a hard time for the rest of our time with him. If you if ever talked shit about the sea, like if everyone broke out laughing, he would like make our lives hell for the rest of, as long <laughs> as we were with him. So like we were all like we all were quiet because like we were all lined up and had to listen because sometimes they do motivational speeches, and that was his. And uh, afterwards, we're all like, he's. A little strange. A lot. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, no, people romanticize the sea. You know what I mean? Like I, so But I, it's I, terrible. Everyone's eating hardtack. <laughs> like you no one's brushing their teeth. They don't have like if you think about like what pirates did, it's like it was a crappy life. 
They didn't have any fruit, and they, they all had scurvy, and like there was so much death and just sadness and getting seasick and stuff. And but so everyone idealizes it, romanticizes it. Romanticizes. Same thing with Mars. It's part. It's partly separation, right? So mm-hmm. you don't have to do the living in either end when you're talking about uh, life at sea like that. So far Movies removed. In books. It's movies and books. Yeah. You, you don't have a real sense of what it would be. And we don't really have a real sense of what it would be like to actually be on Mars. Like, it's mm-hmm. such a huge cognitive leap that you can't you can't make that empathy mark yet. Like, you can't really put yourself there. Um, yeah, totally. Because a lot of the sci-fi is super optimistic. Because sci-fi, I'd say, normally is naturally op- optimistic. And so whenever be. people... It can be pretty yeah, pessimistic, too. This is true. It's, it's um, a pretty, pretty rampant dystopian uh, uh, trend all through science fiction. There's really kind of two. There's well, social commentary yeah, of all kinds. Yeah, it's both. It goes through But both. the ones that I like, I like futurism in a weird, self-enforcing, <laughs> detached from reality way. And but can, it's just because it's cool and interesting. We should uh, talk about futurism at some point. Mm-hmm. I'm going to start keeping track of all the times within the podcast that we say we should talk about this on the podcast. That's good. And I should also write them down, frankly. Make a drinking game. I could make a drink for the folks at home uh, drinking while listening to their Brainwave Science podcast, which is the first time we've said the name. We gotta we gotta get better at that. What's the name? Brainwave Science. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> so follow up from the last show, we were talking about Mars, and at some point I said that the Martian year is about two Earth years. While I was right that it's roughly, uh, just for clarity's sake, it is 1.88 Earth years. Uh, so the amount of time that it takes for Mars to go around the sun, Earth does it 1.88 times. So just for clarity's sake, try not to spread ignorance. Uh, we won't get all of our facts right, but if we go back and catch them, we'll try and keep you updated. We could talk about uh, the half-life of facts, which is cool. The half-life of facts. Yeah, because they have... It was a thing I learned on QI, which is quite interesting, the British show. Uh, they did talk about it for a while, because they, they had been doing the show for a few years... And then they talked about the self, um, the half-life of facts, and they said, statistically, the things that we talked about, something like, um, they're like, uh, 30% of the things we've said are true, that were <laughs> true at the time, are now not true. And they talked about different branches of science, depending on huh. the research and everything. Psychology, I think, was the shortest. But, like, things have certain half-lives. They said, mm. like, physics was, like, something like, uh, because like, they get 30 out-proven? years. Yeah, it's just things that we know are true today will not be true tomorrow because hmm. like you gotta think hundreds of years ago like when people thought the earth was flat like that was before people did the math and everything like uh what was that guy's name i think aristothenes <laughs> i forget it begins with an e but there's that greek guy and he uh he looked down in a well and then he he read that when during um noon over this place uh, the sign shown directly down a well. So he knew on this day of the year that happened. Mm-hmm. And then where he was, which was several hundred um, uh, miles away, he put a stick in the ground and measured the angle. And so he knew that angle in that well was straight up and down. And then he measured his angle to the sun and he calculated the circumference, circumference of, the of the world. Earth. Or not the circumference, the radius. Because they knew that it was round and he knew how round. And he was within 500 miles, which was pretty good. But just before that... There were people who knew that it was round, but then there were people who were like, the earth is flat. And at the time, it was true. Like, so, so many things. Like, cigarettes were good for you 100 years ago. And, like, it was just true trueness. Facts are kind of... Talk about facts and factoids. Facts and... Com- so the difference between truth and facts. 
Like I think about truth is the way things actually are, whether we know it or not, whereas facts are what is the general agreed upon consensus. And that's a big, uh, big difference. Um, like uh, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, NDT. We haven't talked about him in a while. Um, he always we talks should get about, him on. You know, <laughs> Neil, if you're listening, yeah, just uh, pop on over. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll pull up another chair. There's enough room in the box of silence for you. <laughs> That'd be awesome. How many people can we get on the side of this box? We can try. But he talks about um, he talks about the great thing about the truth is it doesn't matter if you believe in it or not. It's still going to be true. But facts being slightly different. So keeping clarity's sake, 1.88 Earth years for every Martian year. So the other very exciting bit to follow up. Uh, because we're totally just starting out and uh, essentially shouting into the void at this point, we have a comment. <laughs> nice. So, Salvador Cartagena? What do you think? Cartagena? Cartagena. Cool. I think this is my friend Sal. Oh, really? Yeah. That's oh, not, shit. He's on the rugby team. This is Rugby Sal. Rugby Sal. Hey, man. Hey. Nice podcast, guys. I'm sorry I didn't recognize your last name, buddy. Oh, I feel a lot so bad Interesting now. things. Looking forward to more. Start do, do the meeting. Salvador said, Nice podcast, guys. Learned a lot of interesting things. Looking forward to more. About meteors hitting Earth. Couldn't it be possible that meteors might have introduced microbacteria from other planets or moons? I agree. I, th- I hope we talked about that. Because we talked about... Um, did you say comets? Meteors. Meteors. So, yeah. Because we talked about that between... There's definitely exchange between Earth and Mars. Because on Earth... They have found meteors that they know are Martian rock. Which is exactly so, what you said last yeah, time. Yeah, so we can say that that definitely happened on Mars, is that there's there are Earth Earth meteors that hit Mars. For clarity's sake, this idea that life may have started somewhere else and then taken a ride on a meteor or some, um, some bit of material and planted itself on Earth and then prospered here, that's called panspermia. So we, we said the word panspermia pretty quickly, biometers, so we both knew it was, probably should have explained. So panspermia is one of the many theories for the origins of life. Uh, the hard thing about the origins of life is pretty... No one was there. Pretty hard to know. None of us, it wasn't written, written history at the time. So panspermia being one of the theories, so that it may have started somewhere else, hitched a ride on a meteor and landed here and then spread... Uh, another one is the idea of uh, the primordial soup. So uh, in early Earth's oceans, you had complex hydrocarbons and different chemicals, and maybe some lightning struck, maybe the right amount of radiation hit, and you just randomly just get organic molecules to form within a bubble. Uh, so so a, a, a lipid bilayer bubble is an important thing for the origins of life. Have you played agar.io? Uh, I've not. It's. I've heard a lot of kids, like at um, the middle school and stuff, they say agario, which I'm pretty sure they're saying it wrong. Mm-hmm. But it's agar, a g a r, and then dot io is the hmm. um, instead of dot com. What do you call it? It's the address. I don't know where dot io is. I looked up on Wikipedia, and it's some random country that I don't know anything about. But they said that people buy it and uh, use it for a lot of stuff. It's how like dot TV like even like that's some country. So agar.io do it. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, you're a bubble, and everyone starts the same size, really, really small. And there's all this like these little food bubbles, and you run around, and as you pick them up, you gain its mass. Hmm. And then there are other players because you play it on a server, and uh, they're they all start the same way. But then there's people who are bigger than the other, and when you run into someone smaller than you, you absorb them. Nice. And then if someone hits you and they absorb you, then the game's over. You have to start so, over again on a different server or huh. the same server, something like that. And so you're really really tiny when you first start out. When you run at when you get 
when you get close to the guy who's like in first place, it's just this huge, massive bubble, and you're this little speck next to it. And you see this essentially straight line just start moving towards you, and you have to run for it. But as your guy grows in relation, you can see more of them. Right. Uh, That's cool. But it's a fun game. I'd but like to play it. It it it's, it's based on the idea that, like in your soup, anytime you have lipid, like you know we talk about life, like dissolves like. So lipids will dissolve things that are um, what's the word? Um, Ampipathic. Both ampipathic. You both polar and non-polar. You jumped over me on that one. (laughs) Um, But I mean, that's the thing is in like your soup, there it doesn't have to be like that. In cells, yes, because they have the Mm -hmm. phospho, um, the phosphate at the end. That's uh, hydrophobic was the word I was looking for. And then the the fat chain is the hydrophilic part. So when you have your the the fat running around in your soup, all those little bubbles. And so like dissolves like, they're going to gather up together because they like being with their like and uh, and push out the water. And if a bubble uh, is bigger than another bubble, it can actually absorb it into itself. Bloop. So that's what the agar game is directly based on, that idea. And that's how it started at the beginning. Like literally you didn't even need a self-replicating portion. Like you could have things that acted like life that didn't even have genetic material of any kind, and you just had these bubbles, and a bigger bubble will absorb a smaller bubble, and that's just how um, like uh, thermodynamics work. They'll just absorb these little bubbles. But then occasionally, materials will just get inside that bubble, and then that's how you get the idea that genetic material could get captured, mm-hmm. and they literally could suck up, siphon off materials from neighboring bubbles. So that's the idea behind the primordial soup, that these natural forming bubbles will eventually take on the organics necessary for life. And you generally, in the theories, they talk about some kind of spark. So a lot of times they talk about lightning hitting the ocean or perhaps some uh, some uh, radi- radiation. So that's one of the theories. Panspermia, which you asked about, Salvador, uh, is one of the other ones. Uh, but there are a few more. Um, so one similar to that is uh, what's called hypercycles. So in nature, there are these self-enforcing chemical reactions. They're not complex enough to be called life. They're not even complex enough to be called, say, viruses, um, which we should talk about the debate between uh, is virus life or not, but that's something we should get to another day. It's a big topic. We could spend a whole time talking about it. I read a good article. It's basically who you ask at this point. Certain Mm -hmm. people will say, you must call it life. (laughs) And uh, they're weird. So hypercycles are these self-enforcing chemical reactions, so uh, usually having to do with carbon and hydrogen, uh, but as certain byproducts will create more of those same byproducts and they'll perpetuate on and on and on, if you get the right combinations of those in a bubble, according to the hypercycle theory, eventually you can get um, the key ingredients to life, uh, which are nucleic acids, so either RNA or DNA. Which leads pretty well into the RNA world, which is another one of the theories. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk about that? So, if you go back to the primordial soup and you have some sort of material that is inside the bubble, you have to you have to assume that it can reproduce. So, you talked about the lightning hit in the water. People have done research. And they did try to recreate what they thought ancient oceans were like. So that would be, when did life arise? Three and a half billion years ago, I think is the number. Somewhere around then. It doesn't really matter. We Big error bars on that one. So Check follow, follow up next time. We'll get the number right. Mm-hmm. So when they think it started, they had some sort of material 
that they have tried to do. There was that experiment where the guy did it in a flask. So the Miller-Urey uh, experiment is, is one of the most famous experiments in all of biology. So you essentially put the contents that we basically know were in primordial oceans in a flask. You get them heated up and you strike them with a bit of electricity and you can get these, um, these bubbles filled with organic materials. So the matter will align itself correctly, naturally, without life, into these complex molecules that we know are the keys to then developing The life. precursors. So it's not that someone started life in the test tube, but you create all of the backbone and all of the materials necessary to then do so. So add another couple hundred million years and you could, you could get uh, some single-celled organisms and add a couple billion more and you've got two guys sitting in front of, uh, of a microphone talking about it. And that's crazy. So, uh, so yeah. Varying theories for the origin of life. We could talk a lot more about it if we actually did any research. Um, so, panspermia, the primordial soup, the RNA world, and hypercycles. We didn't talk about the RNA world. I thought that's what we were just talking about. We were, but then we went, went back. way away. We went back? Yeah. Well, we didn't even get into it. We didn't even talk about what RNA was. So, back to the flask. So, what's his name? Who are the guys? Miller and Yuri. Miller-Urey experiment. So they created the right chemicals to make RNA. And they knew that they don't really know where. Some people say that it might have started at the bottom of the ocean in near hydrothermal vents. Some people say it might have happened in some pond. Because if you had something like an intertidal, um, an intertidal area, you have the sea coming in and out. And the moon is a big deal. I've, the more stuff I read about, they say that the fact mm. that we have a pretty big moon that really affects the tides, we get all this erosion, which means that we have all of these uh, materials that were on the rock that are now dissolved in the ocean. Hmm. And that's where all the salts come from. So that's a pretty big deal. Just the tides doing all that mechanical work is a big deal making the soup in the first place. You have to add energy to this system. Nothing happens in a vacuum, right? So if it's the tidal forces breaking up the sedimentation, or if it's lightning striking, or if it's radiation, there needs to be added energy from outside the system, which is kind of crazy. But all of these, all of these origin stories, you know, whether it happened by a thermal vent or it happened at the bottom of the ocean or the top of the ocean, wherever, there isn't, we should be clear, there isn't evidence that we know of, me and Greg know of, uh, for where these things may have happened. Their theories based on there are no fossils. Yeah, you can't have fossils of of, uh, of the origin of life. It just kind of doesn't yeah, happen. Yeah, the oldest ones they know of are three billion and something years old, and there's um, they're called stromatolites, I think. And there's some cool pictures. I think they're in Australia, and they, they look like these weird domes, and there's just like a bunch of them, and they're they're in they're in some beach, and so they look really alien hmm. on that beach. But they when they slice them open, there's literally rings in it, hmm. and so it's just years and years of biofilm that just add up add up add up and they know that that's what that looks like because they see it later on also so like these are the oldest ones that we know these were bacteria growing on themselves and so that's the oldest they know of and that's because that's the oldest rock so any any rock older than that has gone back under the plates whatever you call that it's submerged back into the mantle there are, there is no rock that old which is a shame and that, that's why that's it's the such best a big rec- question. That's the best record we'll have. Fossil record is the only record we got. That's all we got to work with. So the RNA world. So in the Miller-Urey experiment, you can show that you can essentially create nucleic acids, uh, which are DNA, which everybody knows about, but it's underappreciated in the public eye, but incredibly important RNA. 
Do you want to talk about RNA at all? Yeah, so RNA is a big deal. A thing that I read in one of uh, Richard Dawkins' books was that if you take uh, a bunch of... I don't know what a single RNA unit is called. It's still um, a nucleotide. It's, it's a nucleotide? Yeah. So people have thrown a bunch of nucleotides just into a flask, and consistently, if you just let it sit, and they, uh, they will um, bind to each other, you will get the same sequence of RNA hmm. almost every time. So you just let them self-form, and they'll form the same the same code every huh. time. And uh, I haven't really found much about it. I just it was just a, um, a thing that I read in his book, and I couldn't really find any papers online. But I thought that was a crazy fact. And RNA is is genetic material because it it's the four those four base pairs, and it also has enzymatic qualities to it. So the way that the RNA folds up on itself. It can actually be used as an as a uh, an enzyme. So before proteins ever existed, RNA was doing the only heavy lifting because it was the only <laughs> tool for the job. So there were things RNA was literally making shapes and making reactions happening, and also being the genetic genetic material altogether. And so nowadays, uh, it's used in tRNA because uh, tRNA holds onto amino acids. So it's literally the tool that puts proteins together now. Used to be the proteins themselves. And hmm. they weren't proteins, but they used to be the enzymes themselves. And there's a few other things that they do. I know that in uh, RNA polymerase, uh, attached to the protein itself, there is a sequence of RNA hmm. uh, in certain places. I've heard RNA called uh, the, the Swiss Army knife of matter, right? So it can do all of the things it needs to do. Uh, in order to get all of these things happening. So for to, to scale back for a second, so enzymes uh, in modern life are made out of protein. By definition, they're proteins that have some kind of metabolic activity. So they either break apart or synthesize molecules. So step back to RNA, you have m complex molecules that have those same functions, combining things or pulling things apart, but made out of uh, this heritable material. So a material that can be passed on from generation to generation. So essentially it's like protein and DNA in one. Ribosomes. Ribosomes is the big thing. Because ribosomes are the tool to make proteins. And they themselves have a lot of RNA in them. And you can just see that everything has ribosomes. Because like your, you have your, um, your rough ER, mm -hmm. the rough endoplasmic reticulum, is just, it's, a, it's an RNA factory in like materials depot. And it does so many things. And then RNA, I mean not RNA, ribosomes are just floating around all over the place in the cytoplasm and in bacteria too. They're just everywhere. everywhere. And they're very important. They're ubiquitous. And so ribosomes are made of two protein subunits and then uh, RNA components. And these things together can then turn genetic code, so RNA or DNA, into protein. So you talk about the uh, central dogma of biology. So this was laid down by, I want to say it's Crick. It's either Watson or Crick of the discovery Watson of DNA. Um, which is that DNA leads to RNA leads to protein. So one code transla translates to another, which is then transcribed into Trans the physical thing. Transcription, then translation. Is that not what I said? You I said, said it backwards. backwards. Yeah, because you got to think it's DNA in us, not in all living things. Um, but you have our, we have our DNA. It gets transcribed, which is like taking notes. Like you're writing, you're writing the same information over again a different way. It's so going from DNA to RNA. And the RNA goes over to the ribosome and gets translated. It's like translating into a different language. It goes from the language of RNA to the language of amino acids. So that's where you get your translation. 
So that's a central dogma of, of biology. So if you can understand that, just add tons of crazy more words and complex processes. And, and that's, classes that's, and homework and labs. That really is the core. <laughs> that's the core of cellular biology is this central dogma. If, you, if understanding that rela- relationship between DNA, RNA, and protein changed the game for really our full understanding of how cells work and how life works. So we've gotten to the central dogma. So thank you, Sal, uh, Salvador, for the comment. Um, if you guys ever have questions, because uh, now apparently people are listening, which is kind of cool, uh, feel free to leave questions. We'd like to, to answer them. That lets us go down in rabbit holes and talk more. And we want to be clear, and we want you guys to learn. That's half the, uh, the point of this. Half the point is for us to explore our own curiosities. The other half is hopefully for you to pick something up. So uh, to that note, you can uh, leave a comment on the SoundCloud page. We are on Facebook and Reddit. Uh, We'll leave links in the show notes or however you may be finding this. But leave us comments, leave us questions. There was a guy, I think it's Fisher. I don't want to say it wrong because he's a famous evolutionary biologist. Fisher is the name that I know. That he talked about, might have been someone else, but I thought it was him. He specifically talked about complexity itself being a niche that organisms fill. Hmm. Because if you think about bacteria, bacteria are ubiquitous. It, people have said the world has always been the world of bacteria and it will always be the world of bacteria. When human beings are extinct, there will still be bacteria doing all their bacteria stuff. Because if you... Because they can know, evolve so quickly. Yeah, I don't they know can, how you could do it, but if you could weigh like the biomass of bacteria, it's going to be way many, many orders of magnitude more than if you weighed all the humans together. Because people have talked about like ants, that uh, if you weighed all the ants on the world and all the plant, uh, the uh, humans on the world, it would be almost roughly the same weight because hmm. uh, ants are very successful. But if you weighed bacteria, far and away, it's bacteria. They win. That's <laughs> them. Nice job, guys. Yeah. So, team. so they're everywhere. So they essentially don't care about us. You know, they're like, they're, we're not on their radar. Even when they're inside of a human being, they're not conscious of being inside a human being. They're doing their thing. And we are on a very different level. Like our, our daily lives, we don't think about bacteria. I mean, now, because we know about medicine and microbial theory and stuff, we do care about bacteria. But if you think any multicellular organism that isn't a human being, bacteria is not on their radar at all. So it's only because we're intelligent that we care. Hmm. And... So we essentially are not competing for the same things. Like in the, in the fact that we cross over in a sort of a parasitism way. Other than that, we don't care about each other and, at all. And in a symbiotic way. So more and more people are realizing uh, that you've got this, this missing phantom organ uh, called your microbiome. So it's the... the your flora. Yeah, your, your gut flora. So the hundreds of thousands of bacterial species that live in your stomach... And your belly button. Um, and your belly button and all over your body, but they all play functions. So they're starting to think that if you have uh, poor biodiversity in your stomach, so you don't have enough of the right types of bacteria, uh, they're starting to link that with things like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease uh, because a lot of the function has to do with these bacteria can break down things that we can't. And so we They can give, make essential amino acids. We so kind of need them. Exactly. We give them a host and they can give us some of the things that we need and have become dependent on. But then now as you use disinfectants all over the place and you everyone wants to fight germs. Another one is diet. I've read that if you eat – that's people who have uh, diets high in sugar, they end up breeding bacteria in their gut that are for sugar. 
Like you, it's a self-enforcing thing. And then they release chemicals that will, make you want more sugar. Exactly, they will influence your behavior and, and make you crave sugar even more. And it's a feedback loop. And then it makes them more more prevalent. And they kill off or they outcompete all the other different kinds of bacteria that like different things. So from the papers I've been reading, people more and more are talking about the need for medicine to realize that the human body is a super organism, one of which of the components is a human being, right? So that, that the, the human is a host for a vast majority of parasites and bacteria, all of which play a part in our own health and our own biology, and that uh, acknowledging that is super important. So complexity is a niche that we filled in uh, as opposed to bacteria. Even though there is some collaboration, we're not on the same page. We're not on the same uh, level of magnitude as uh, of, of complexity. And all of that, and what we really share at the core of all of that is RNA. It's, it's conserved. If something's conserved over all of life, it's got to be important because that's how, that's the number one argument for evolution is that everything that's alive, even viruses that are arguably not alive, all have the same genetic material. We're all made of the same chemicals. We all use proteins. We mm -hmm. all use DNA and RNA. And that's, that's it. That's the, that's the number one thing that says we are all related because we all have the same stuff. Evolutionary bio, TLDR. <laughs> if two very different things share something, it means two things. It's very important. And if you don't have it, you'll die. And their common ancestor, however very crazy long ago, also had it. Granted, there are weird cases where things will evolve independently. So you talk about convergent evolution. So both bats and birds both ended up getting wings, but they didn't have a common ancestor. Because there's had only wings. so many ways to do things. Because there's a besides morphology, there's chemical mm -hmm. convergent evolution. A lot of genes have been separately come mm. upon, these, these groups of genes. But convergent evolution is the exception, not the rule, by far and away. And it gets down to partly Occam's razor. So the simplest, uh, the simplest idea is that it will have or evolved once and then diverged into the two lineages. So evolutionary bio, TLDR, if two things that are very different have something, it's important. Do you want to stay on that or do you want to move to something else? I just want to talk about water bears. Water bears are cool. Uh, I forget what they're really called. Tardigrades. Tardigrades are awesome. Uh, we hope to look for some in the near future, like next summer. We we want to go find some. Who's we? Uh, the Makerspace. The Makerspace. Because they got that electron uh, microscope. Nice. So they got this weird... Explain who they are. The Maker... Lowell Makes is in Lowell, and they started around two years ago, and they are a Makerspace, which is a growing bunch of different um, organizations that specifically have workshops that people come and they pay money. And they have a um, subscription to the space, and they can come in whenever they want. And they have a wood shop and uh, a bunch of computers you can use. And there's a lot of people tinkering and do. There's a lot of cosplayers for some reason, <laughs> and uh, there's a lot of uh, engineers. One of the founders, uh, I forget his name. His name's John, but he's actually a uh, astrophysicist. Really? Yeah, he's I didn't one of know the Co-founders. Yeah. That's interesting. He said he's been sick, and that's why he wasn't at the huh. open house. But hopefully, he'll be at all the other. I'd like to meet him. Open houses. Yep. Yeah, so Makerspace is essentially, you talk about people having a co-working space where you can rent out essentially conference rooms and printers and stuff. Instead, the tools are just way cooler and the people are way weirder. Uh, so and they got an electron microscope. So it's still in a crate right now. But he was telling me, I looked it up online, the, uh, the model, and uh, it's four 
it, uh, it's big part of it is for education because it's a little like a desktop printer. It's super streamlined. It's about yay big. Hmm. I'm making the size of about, I don't know, a microwave on it, standing on its side. And uh, you don't need a vacuum. Or, or the, the cheaper one doesn't make a vacuum is what it is. <laughs> and uh, also, you don't need to spray it in gold because that's a, oh, yeah, a, a that's big thing. Oh, yeah, that's why it's so expensive. Yeah, is that uh, you have to um, atomize the gold like spray the spray this gold on it and i used to think it was so the electrons had something to bounce off of i don't know why i felt like the electron radiation would like go through things and like you needed gold because it was dense but that's <laughs> not true at all that was just my misconception you actually need it so when the electrons hit the thing you're looking at those electrons are now electricity forming ions doing things you they need to go to ground and you need to cover everything in gold so that the electrons hit the gold and then can follow the golds to wherever they need to go. So And then it maps the shape of that mo motion? Um, no, it's just the part where it hits that's important. Okay. I honestly don't know how it really works. But I just know that if it wasn't grounded, you're just shooting electricity at something that's not hmm. grounded. And that electricity is going to go somewhere, which means it's probably going to come out of the top machine and shock you or something. <laughs> so like it just, it's just to complete the circuit and the gold is used on the, the, the item or whatever. I don't remember what you call it, the sample. So you're going to use this? But these don't have that. I, I don't know how. Huh. But so, you, so you and the Lulmakes are going to try and find tardy grades uh, with your electron idea. microscope? Because they're everywhere. That's awesome. We're not going to run around with the electron microscope and look for stuff. But we have but to go take to find samples them and, and, stuff. Then, and then image yeah, them. Because we them. know that they live in water, so we could find them in the dirt, on plants. We're going to look around in, uh, in ponds and stuff. But because this thing doesn't need a vacuum, and you don't need to cover it in gold, we might be able to find one that lives. Because shooting electricity through it, it's probably gonna kill it, but if anything in the world's gonna live through it, it's gonna be, be a tardigrade. <laughs> so we're gonna see what happens. Because it'd be cool to see if it moved around for a little bit before it died, because we get footage of it. So that'd be pretty cool. That so would be look. very cool. Mm -hmm. So you're essentially teaching yourself how to use this incredibly expensive and, and very, very powerful tool. I gotta get training. They're gonna send a guy uh, I don't remember the uh, the brand, but they're going to send a guy. Zeiss, perhaps. Zeiss. Zeiss. Yeah. They're they're a big microscope company. Zeiss. Zeiss. So water bears are cool for the panspermia idea because they're multicellular, and they've brought them up in the International Space Station. They op they crack a window and they <laughs> stick them out on the on the windowsill. Um, I don't know how they do it at all, but um, <laughs> these not things, how, the, they will um, essentially form like a cyst. They, um, because they're an arthropod, they have um, a chitinous uh, exoskeleton, and they do something. I don't know if they make it harder or whatever, but they can basically go dormant hmm. and uh, become watertight. And so um, I think they said half of their water bears lived from being in space. I don't remember how long they were out there for, but they brought them back in, and then half of them died and half of them lived again. Huh. They, uh, they put a little water on them, they popped right back, and then they said half of those, so a quarter of all of the ones they tested, uh, were um, sexually viable. So they were actually wow, reproduced still fertile. and were making, making new tardigrades. So that's pretty cool that we can send stuff into space and live, because we talked about that with Mars is they have to make everything in a clean room that they send to Mars at different levels because we know things were going to live. And, and they're going to be covered with bacteria. Yeah. So, yeah, the different sterilization levels of what NASA sends out uh, to everywhere, but also Mars, which now has flowing water. Well, it's had for a long time, but now we just <laughs> now know we about know. it. Yeah, now we know. Talk about the half-life of facts. 
Half-Life effects. There was no it's more been interesting. on Mars, and now we know. It's been interesting. I'm going back and reading uh, Sagan's Cosmos, mm-hmm. um, and especially in Mars, because there's been so much about Mars, but especially with Pluto, too. Reading what he had to say about it in the 70s, and then now what we know. Uh, you know, there's I filled in a lot of these question marks. And it's really exciting, because um, really, in the grand scheme of, of human history and of, of uh, the history of science, Sagan was not that long ago at all died very recently and yet we know very much more uh which is pretty awesome so how do you want to close it we should come up with a saying we should come up with a saying shamalama ding dong (laughs) shamalama ding dong we'll be back next week wubba lubba dub dub